the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good morning, everyone. One more time on a Saturday morning. 53 will be the high, says the 710 KNUS Weather Center. 43 on Sunday and Monday, 48 degrees. I'm Peter Boyles. Our Saturday morning show at 9. Um, without further ado, I I thought this book was tremendous. And uh, it's David Christendier as our guest. And the book is on Ernie Pyle. And as a young guy that fell in love with history and World War II uncles, um, and the book is entitled The Soldier's Truth, and I love the line that they had, he was the poet laureate of the Second World War, America's most loved reporter, Ernie Pyle. David, welcome to Denver, and thank you for your work. Hey, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure. No, I was, and it's really interesting, I find myself oftentimes reading in circles, and I'm currently reading a book about Drew Pearson, and it's entitled The Columnist. And I'm reading, oh, sure. and I'm reading Flyboys, and um, you know, Pearson aside, he was a you know obviously a columnist, but um, and then this this book about it's about Herbert Walker Bush, and then what happens to the dauntless pilots, and this is after Ewo, and mm-hmm. and um, Ernie's dead, and. I don't know, somehow this, the tie-in, I think, is how did I end up reading all these things at once, but your book is really a special book. A lot of folks today, I think they might know the name, but the life of Ernie Pyle. Talk, talk about him, if you would. Yeah, well, I was one of those people, actually, um, and, and I have sort of a serendipitous you know, experience of how I, how I came to met, meet Ernie Pyle. I was actually in Okinawa, which is where Ernie Pyle was killed at the end of World War II. And I was there, unrelated to Ernie Pyle, I was there to do research about my grandfather, who was a soldier during World War II, and he fought during the Battle of Okinawa. And I had hired a um, a local person to kind of take me around and show me the different places where the battles took place. And, uh, and he suggested I go to um, what's called the Cornerstone of Peace, memorial and it's on the southern end of the island which is where the the japanese made their last stand in the battle and now it's this um this incredible memorial where you know very similar to the vietnam wall in dc with black granite and the names carved into the wall they have that same kind of setup except the the black granite walls are kind of they look like waves kind of crashing rows and rows of waves because there are over two hundred sixty thousand names inscribed um, that's how many people died during the battle on both sides and civilians included. And, uh, so this tour guide asked me, he said, you know, do you want to look up any names and we can make an etching? And I didn't really have that level of knowledge of my grandfather's unit at that time. So I didn't have any names ready to go. And he said, Oh, don't worry. I'll show you a name that I'm sure you'll recognize. And he took me to see Ernie Pyle's name. And in the moment, you know, I remember it was like, oh, I know that name. It's on the tip of my tongue. How do I know that? 
Um, and I, the first thing that came to me was, oh, is this the guy that they based Gomer Pyle off of? <laughs> and I, because I remember watching Gomer Pyle reruns with my dad when I was a kid. And this guy sort of shook his head and he said, you know, you flew 7,000 miles to figure out what your grandfather experienced, you know, what soldiers experienced during a battle and you've never read Ernie Pyle. You know, he, he was looking at me like I had, you know, uh, sort of totally missed the, the boat. And, and so he said, that's the first thing you have to do when you get home is you have to read everything that Ernie Pyle ever wrote. And so I did that and really fell in love with his writing. He was an incredible um, I think that that phrase you you said, but he was the poet laureate. That's mm. the best way to describe his writing. It was um, very granular detail. He called his writing the worm's eye view of mm. the war. Um, so he lived, you know, right with the troops at the front lines. He slept in the same slit trenches. He ate the same food. He wore the same clothing. Mm. He dealt with, you know, trench foot just like everybody else. You know, he really became one of them. And and in a lot of ways was their translator you know he was sort of translating the experience back to the readers in the united states and and by the time of the d-day landings in france uh, he had about 12 and a half million daily readers uh, of his column which ran six days a week and i mean at the at the very height of his fame he was being read by 14 million people a day um he was in 98 of the hundred biggest markets. He had uh, multiple, you know, best-selling books. Hollywood was making a movie about him. I mean, he was he was a celebrity journalist um, before we had celebrity journalists. And yeah, and, yeah. I, I was going to say the demise of newspapers in this country. But um, I, I, again, I'm reading this book on the life of Drew Pearson, and. Mm-hmm. Um, it was Washington merry-go-round, and he's yeah. and he's he's a contemporary of Ernie Pyle's, but he never put it on the line. Ernie Pyle begins writing other kinds of other kinds of work or other kinds of columns before the Second World War. Talk about that, if you would. Right. Well, his work as a war correspondent, it, it's really safe to say that was like the fourth phase of his career as a journalist. So the first phase, he, he started out as a cub reporter, you know, working a beat, doing the daily kind of grind. Um, but he showed a special skill for headline writing and for editing. And so he was eventually made an editor and he was really good at helping reporters make their pieces more clear, more concise really snappy, right? That was kind of his his special skill. So he rose through the ranks in newspapers doing that. But then in his spare time, he was really fascinated by the early days of aviation. And he was living in Washington, D.C. There were all these different airports around there. He got to know many of the pilots. He was friends with Amelia Earhart, among other people. You know, he wrote and he wrote a, a daily column that people got really excited about. So that was kind of the second phase of his career. And then he became a roving correspondent. He did this for about seven years with his wife, um, Geraldine, but everybody called her Jerry. And he crisscrossed the United States um, and went to every single state, including Alaska and Hawaii. Um, He toured all over um, Central America and South America and, again, wrote a daily column. And um, I wrote in the book that over the course of that seven years, uh, he wrote something like 2.1 million words 
um, that were published. And, and if you think of a book being between, you know, 80,000 and 100,000 words, it was like he wrote 30 books in that time, um, just a hugely prodigi prodigious writer. And so then when the war comes along, he's, first of all, really good at writing clearly and concisely. Second, he's made friends with all these pilots, many of whom are now, you know, flying bombers in, in the war and has connections and understands sort of how to be a fly on the wall and how to talk to people about their work and how to get the stories out of them, right? And then he spent seven years meeting people from all over the country and getting to know their stories and, and learning their cultures and their land, you know, studying their landscapes. And so when he went to Europe to cover the war, you know, he could say, oh, this is just, you know, this place is just like this place, or, you know, this is just like when I was in Virginia or what. And so he had this way of like really bringing the reader with him and, and showing them what they really wanted to see. And what they really wanted to see was what are the soldiers experiencing? What's it like for them? The book is the soul. It's entitled the soldier's truth. And this is David Christinger, our guest. And then you retrace and the part that I, I'm that I was taken up by is that you you know you go to Oki to see about your granddad, but then you start retracing the steps of Ernie Pyle. And as a kid, you know, and as and now as a you know as an old man reading about what happened at Casserine and then what happens at the at the casino and all those things, Ernie mm -hmm. Pyle. And by the way, as an aside. Uh, on demand, I watched the Ernie Pyle movie <laughs> where Burgess Meredith oh, yeah. Burgess Meredith yeah. is playing Ernie Pyle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, I just got, got drawn into this. Um, why did you make the decision to to re retrace those steps? Well, partly it was because I that had been so impactful for me when I was doing my the project about mm -hmm. my grandfather that you know, being able to go to the place and see what it feels like. And, you know, there's energies that you can feel. It's just, you know, especially like I spent time in cemeteries all mm -hmm. over the world and battlefields and mm -hmm. these places just feel different. And to be able to write about it with any sort of level of expertise, that's one thing is like, I felt like I needed to actually go to these places and see these places. Yeah. But then the other thing was I wanted to, answer a couple of questions. One was, what is there now today, right? Where, what is in Kazarine? What is it at Casino? What does Normandy look like? You know, what, where are these places that Ernie reported from? What, what lasting impact did the war have? What sort of mark did Ernie leave on these places? And that was one thing that I, I found, um, uh, you know, perhaps unsurprising now that I look back on it, but at the time it was, again, sort of serendipitous, was how much these places remember Ernie Pyle wow. still to this day. And there's even this tiny little village in France um, that I visited where Ernie had, had written about that village because there was this incredible uh, story that took place there, this um, British pilot crash-landed in a field right outside the town, and was trapped and survived for eight days trapped in this plane. And Ernie and another soldier are the ones who find him and kind of get and rescue him from the plane and get him the medical care he needs. Well, I went to this little town hoping I could 
you know, maybe see a placard or something. And right outside the the city hall, there's this this two uh, sort of two page placard that describes Ernie Pyle writing this this article about this guy and how he was trapped in a field right over there. And I mean, the so the lasting kind of impact that Ernie had in terms of his storytelling and the way that he understood things. But then the other thing I wanted to see was what do we know now today that that Ernie wouldn't have known or could not have known at the time or you know what ways in which you know what ways did his writing sort of accurately predict how things were going to be and where were the cases in which maybe he was totally wrong because he had he had a wrong picture now that's one thing i found was that he wasn't wrong uh (laughs) most of the time so it was you know that was i think part of what again made him such a impactful figure was that he told the soldiers truth did you find it's whether or not in in censorship because he's really carrying this little and you have a a copy of it his typewriter i mean he had an old school Mm -hmm. and he lugged it with him yes yeah he always carried it with him how did he Given our day of electronic reporting, how did he get those columns back, number one? And then I want to move to Kasserine. But how did he get the, the, the columns back to the to the syndicators? Sure. Well, some of that technology evolved as the war continued on. Um, so initially what he would do, and this was sort of a novel approach. There weren't other reporters who were doing it this time. He would attach himself to a unit and he would stay with that unit for a week or 10 days or two weeks. Now, normally reporters would go in for the day and then they would go back to the headquarters and type up their daily report. But Ernie wasn't worried about typing things up daily. So he would sort of go out in the field and then he would go back to the headquarters city or find a hotel or something. And he would lock himself in his room and he would pound out, you know, 10, 15 columns all about what he had just experienced. And so he would use a typewriter and we don't have any of the original copies of his reports. We have the copies that were sent back to the United States. So we don't know necessarily if he took multiple drafts or if he, you know, penciled in comments and typed those in later. We don't really, we don't really know. But what we do know is what was sent to the United States. So in the early part of the war, they were actually put on ships, you know, put oh. in packages and put on oh. ships and taken back. And and then later in the war, once the Italian campaign is starting, now they're starting to do it where um, you would go to the military censor office. Mm-hmm. The censor would check to make sure there wasn't anything, you know, compromising or defeatist in, in its <laughs> nature. And then they would uh, use, you know, the... Um, Oh, I'm blanking on it. The uh, where it's a Morse code. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, <laughs> I can't think of the it's name. Okay. Of it. um, but um, or they would have it where you would phone in the radio and you would read it over the radio, and someone would type it up in London, and then it would be sent, um, you know, wirelessly a telegram yeah. as a telegram <laughs> be sent to the United States. Now, once it got to the United States, it would be sent out to all the papers that were signed up to receive it. And then the editor of each one of those papers had had the final say over what exactly would go into the column, which is kind of funny. So when I was doing the research, I was encouraged by some people that knew this to just focus on 
the columns from one paper because they could be edited differently. And, you know, sometimes they were combined, sometimes they were shortened. So um, that was that was the very laborious process. Now, to give some perspective, his reporting that he did from D-Day didn't run in the paper until 10 days later. So it took about 10 days for it to get to the United States. And but, get you know, it's, it's interesting with time with um, and technology. And there's that – it's a parable about when – you know, when the assassination attempts on presidents, that as I've read it, that when Lincoln was assassinated, um, three and four days later, there were still citizens of the United States of America that did not know that Lincoln was dead. Oh, sure. I and, believe that. Yeah. And then when it comes to Jack Kennedy and uh, how quickly, but when the attempt was made on Ronald Reagan, you know, almost instantly everybody knew. And I thought mm-hmm. about that a lot during, you know, reading you and um, after Casserine. And those of you who have seen the motion picture Patton with George Scott, his arrival, it opens after the defeat at Casserine. Mm-hmm. And what did the censors do? I mean, I, I've read um, that no one in this country saw dead bodies until dead bodies of Americans until Tarawa. That, That's correct. Is that yeah? I've read that. I didn't know it was yep. true. That the media was tightly held, and in the meantime, guys like Ernie Pyle. Well, let's go back to Tarawa. Why was it that nobody saw young dead Americans until Tarawa? Well, the way that that I've had it explained to me, and where I've seen some kind of contemporary writing about this, was that the initial fear, and this was true during the North African campaign and some of the early battles in the Pacific, the the big fear was that dead Americans would mean less support for the war. Yes. Yes. Then once Tarawa comes around and then for Ernie pilots, once the Italian campaign comes around um, and he, he does his own version of this, but this is around, you know, 1943, Mm -hmm. early 1943, the thinking changes to, we have to show what is happening so that people will continue to buy war bonds, mm-hmm. you know, sacrifice for their country, um, continue the, the, you know, it became sort of a morale booster almost yeah. to show, to show the deaths that, that, you know, these young men can't die in vain sort of became the message. And, and Ernie, Ernie's writing tracks a very similar progression mm-hmm. In the beginning of the war, even after the defeat at Kazarin, it's still, you know, there's still this very upbeat, mm-hmm. you know, hey, don't count us out yet. <laughs> yes, we got clobbered, but this isn't the end, right? And, like, luckily, he was right at the time. Um, but by the time the Italian campaign comes around and it turns into this mm. you know, terrible slog, Ernie's starting to be more honest about the what war does to people and you know how it affects him personally and how it affects the other correspondents and you know the sacrifices that are being made and the losses that are being endured but again he has to keep that 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 tone of it's going to be worth it take a second here and talk about casserine um it's in tunisia and it was Mm -hmm. first americans are ashore in north africa and again, I come back to that the George C. Scott film when it shows him arriving, and that was post Casserine. 
Why, right. And I mean, George Patton is, you know, like I'm, there's got to be at least 60 books on the market about George Patton. But <laughs> but um, what did Ernie Powell think of George Patton? Well, it, you know, it's funny that he, you bring because up he Drew broke he, he, he broke. Yeah, they broke the story on the slapping the kids. Right. Slapping, yes. So yeah. Drew Pearson, who you mentioned, did the merry-go-round column. Um, him and Ernie were always kind of battling for the top spot and yes. who who had the best column. And Drew Pearson stayed in the United States. And so he was not subjected to the same censorship that mm-hmm. reporters that were overseas were subjected to. And so Ernie knew about Patton slapping his soldiers in Sicily. And he was outraged by it. He believed that that's not how a general should treat his soldiers, no matter what they do. That you know, and Ernie was always the champion of the soldier. He never, he never wanted to defend the officers <laughs> against the soldiers. He really, he identified with the, you know, he called them the dog face grunts. Um, now, when he, Ernie never wrote about the slapping incident, and I think he chose Ernie chose never to write about George Patton for that exact reason that he didn't want to give publicity to General Patton after what happened. But what he did do is he wrote a three-part series about General Bradley, praising General Bradley. And if you remember, Bradley and Patton didn't exactly get along. And so that that probably ruffled Patton, you know, not only to be ignored by America's most famous correspondent, but to also have his, you know, his... Yeah, no, yeah, no uh, it, it makes you know. sense um, because it, I've read about Bradley and Bradley's kind of the Ernie Pyle general. Yes, that's a great way to describe yeah. him. That he was. Yeah, the, and, yeah. Well, and so, you know, what happens at Kazarine is the general who's in charge there is basically fighting World War One and mm-hmm. isn't ready for World War Two. And so the way he has the defensive position set up is all wrong. The way he's got his, his troops laid out is all wrong. And um, uh, General Rommel from the uh, Africa Corps, the German Wehrmacht, they just sort of steamroll through that central Tunisian plain and, and run the Americans out of the Kazarine Pass and are, you know, about to, uh, get to the headquarters city where they could have done a lot of damage and sort of run out of steam. And, and because their forces were divided and a few other, um, you know, logistical problems, the Germans had to retreat back. Mm-hmm. And so luckily that gave the Americans enough time to kind of regroup and it gave time for the British to get in there and get involved. And, and so luckily Kazarian Pass was, you know, a incredibly embarrassing debacle, but it was very short lived. And, Patton takes charge mm-hmm. right after, takes command right after uh, that because they needed a general that wasn't going to, you know, be fighting World War One instead of World War Two. And so Patton comes in, improves discipline, you know, improves morale, starts winning, and the Tunisian campaign is really won by the British. But, you know, the Americans sort of had to get their you know, had to cut their teeth a little bit. Um, What's it look they like? Ready. I know you were there. What the, what does Kazarine look like now? You you talk about it in yeah. the book. Yeah. Well, I got really lucky because I met a woman whose family owns the land mm-hmm. in Kazarine Pass. 
So <laughs> this is, again, uh, so many serendipitous things happen with this project. But a friend of mine who's a professor in France had a student, and this is the woman who became my tour guide in Tunisia, had a student from Tunisia whose father was a diplomat. And so she had lived all over the world. She spoke French. She spoke English. She spoke Arabic. She spoke Berber. And I was like, what do I have to do to get this person to, you know, show me around Tunisia? And then I, once I got introduced to her, she's like, oh yeah, my family owns the land in Kazarin Pass. And my family was there during the battle. And it was like, oh my gosh, you know, this, this kind of access, you know, I couldn't have probably planned for this. Um, it was, it was again, uh, so many interesting, you know, developments and relationships that, that popped up. So you got to have to imagine basically a shallow valley between two high mountain peaks. And that's, that's the Kazarin Pass. So instead of going up over one of the mountains, you can travel through there. Yeah. And this, this family owned all the land and were using it to um, cultivate olives and, um, yeah. and prickly pears. And, and basically central Tunisia looks like, I mean, it's a <laughs> desert, it's a high desert. There's prickly pear trees everywhere. Um, olive groves, lots of sand, um, and basically nothing there. Yeah. And very few roads, huge irrigation ditches, you know, things like that. And so we get to, we finally get to Kazarin, and it's like, you know, I'm, I'm walking up this hill, and this woman, her name was Yomna, her uncle, who still lives there, is kind of pointing and showing different things. And she says, you know, oh, here's where my family's compound was that was destroyed during the battle. Right. And it's like, what, what do you mean? (laughs) You know, and, and it's been, you know, grown over and, and she's telling me stories of like how they put olive oil in the mortar to Mm -hmm. make it last longer. And so that's why it's still there. And, you know, and, and it's like this thing that affected their family, you know, they lost family members during the battle um, you know, accidentally collateral damage and they had, you know, stayed on the land, they'd farmed it, they'd uncovered, you know, mines and yeah. unexploded ordnance and, and all the rest. And, and they were so amazed that someone from America yeah. was there, first of all, yeah. but that want that wanted to hear their stories yeah. and wanted to tell their side of the story. And what I really found myself doing was maybe the kind of stories that Ernie might have written Mm -hmm. if he had survived the war and if he had traveled back to these places, which he wrote about frequently as a desire of his, because he said, you know, everywhere we went, it was so beautiful. It was a shame there was a war going on, Mm -hmm. you know, and it would be, it'd be nice to go back to these places without there, without there being a war going on. So I, I got the opportunity to do that. And then I got the opportunity to meet all these people, you know, who were affected and who have stories to tell. Let me do this. I need to do a couple of things, sell some stuff. Uh, the book is The Soldier's Truth, Ernie Pyle, and the story of World War II. It's a powerful book. And David, one of the things that you, like, I read Ernie Pyle as a kid and that, but her, his life is his own life. And his wife's problems and alcoholism mm-hmm. and, you know, and then I want to bring up Steinbeck and Hemingway. Okay. And because that's Sounds important. Good. And then let's, yeah, let me, so let me put you on hold. Um, David's publisher, by the way, to do this right, 
is a peng- penguin book, Penguin Press. It's in hardback. Uh, the Soldier's Truth about Ernie Pyle and seeing these other people involved, Hemingway, Steinbeck, and so many others. And the book I'm reading, The Columnist, is about Drew Pearson. And newspapers were so significant, so important, and, and as was radio. And looking at, you know, in today's world, it doesn't quite hold up. I'm going skiing uh, as soon as this puppy's over. Get my first ski days in. The, the snow is good. Winter Park's great. It means it's time to visit Larson Ski and Sport to get all your new gear for the season and ready to get out there and have some fun. Take it from me if you need any ski or snowboard gear. Larson Ski and Sport. If you're a renter and you want to try snowboarding, just bring your skis back. And I, I don't even know why I read this. <laughs> it's like... Why would you do that? It's like, but they'll try. You want to bring in skis? They'll give you a board. Whatever you need, they'll make it work. The guys at Larson's, Paul, and, of course, uh, Jack, Jack Marriott and his dad will take time to get to know you, get your family, and match you up with all the right brands so you can enjoy your time on the hill. Larson's is so convenient, you can stop on the way up or on the way home. Westbound on I-70, get off on the Kipling exit, come down the ramp, make a left, Go back under I-70. You come out on the other side. Look to the right. First, you see the Crab Shack, and then after that, you'll see this great big wooden box. It's big-time marked. That's Larson Ski and Sports, seven days a week. John Marriott, Paul, the guys at Larson's, absolute experts in everything you need for winter sports. Do rentals. You can you go, You can rent demo skis, and demo skis are practically brand new. Try out skis before you buy skis. Stop in today and tell them I sent you. Larson Ski and Sports, seven days a week. South of I-70 on Kipling, 303-423-0654, 303-423-0654, or just Larson Sports, the, um, the web, L-A-R-S-O-N, LarsonSport.com. Anything and everything you need, Larson Sport. Sultans of Swing, we're the Sultans. Morning, everybody. It's a Saturday, December the 30th, Peter Boyle, 710 KNUS. Our weather center weather says 53, the high today, 43 on Sunday. And 48 degrees on Monday. 710 KNUS coming up. Steve Harms will talk about that film, The Iron Claw, about the Von Erichs. In the meantime, this book is a gift. Uh, David Kissinger, Kissinger is our guest. The Soldier's Truth about Ernie Pyle and the story of World War II. Before we bring up the other prominence, uh, Ernie Pyle's private life, it must have been so difficult to be over where he was and have things happening at home with his wife and others. Take a second with that, David, if you would. Sure. So uh, Jerry, his wife, um, I talked to a couple of doctors and, and you know, while I was doing research for the book and just told them about some of her symptoms and some of the things that she went through and both said, oh, that sounds like a bipolar disorder. Now, this would have been um, you know, before that was a diagnosis, before they had medication to manage it. Uh, but basically, Jerry would have these very high highs and these very low lows. And when she was at her lowest, she was suicidal. She, um, you know, wouldn't leave her room. She wouldn't get out of bed. And the life of being a roving correspondent, mm. you remember, she rode with him. And he, he referred to her as the girl that rides with me. Um, the life of, you know, living out of a suitcase and being on the road for so many years probably wasn't very helpful to her condition. And so at one point, Ernie and Jerry decided they would 
put down some roots finally. They bought a piece of land and had a home built in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And then as soon as the house was, you know, about to be finished, uh, Ernie decided to go overseas to England to cover the uh, the German bombing raids against London and against you know, southern England. And Jerry took that very hard, that, that Ernie had sort of broken this promise that they were going to kind of settle down for a little while. But Ernie was so, um, you know, intent on getting overseas and, and sort of cutting his teeth as a, as a foreign correspondent um, that, that he went anyway and her mental health declined, yeah. you know, further, further from there. And then once um, the war started, Ernie was, once it started for, for the United States, <clears throat> rather, Ernie was faced with this, this really difficult choice, which was, you know, does he stay home and take care of his wife or does he go overseas, which is what, you know, his, his bosses think he should do, he, he should do and what he really wants to do to avoid sort of other paths that he might need to take if he wasn't doing that. And, and that was a point where, um, where Jerry's mental health was so bad that she needed to be institutionalized. And actually the, the doctor at the time, just to give you another sense of, you know, how little they really understood about what to do with someone in her condition, the, the her doctor recommended to Ernie that he divorce her before they, before he leaves to go overseas to sort of snap her out of her depression. Well, that obviously didn't do the trick. Um, they were remarried by proxy later on, but, um, but they did get divorced for a short time. Um, and, whenever Ernie would come home and he came home twice during the war, Jerry would get better. And then as soon as it was time for him to leave, she would get really bad. And, and the, the, the worst that she got was before um, Ernie needed to leave to go to the Pacific. And, and that was the time where she attempted suicide, got as close as she ever got to completing the job um, and needed to be institutionalized again. I thought how and difficult, so, how hard that must oh, have been, man. Oh, in- incredible. And and I think, you know, Ernie's story really is the story of a man who's torn between his duty mm-hmm. to his country and his duty to his family. Do you think, with apologies in advance, do you think he was alcoholic? Well, he certainly drank a lot. And, you know, but at the same time, the, the culture back oh, then was, oh, absolutely. you know, was much more, um, you know, inclined to alcohol and, oh, and, totally. you know, so he had stretches where he didn't drink, like in North Africa, it was very hard to find liquor and he didn't <laughs> like wine. And so he refused to drink the wine. Um, and, and he was sober most of you know, through the North African campaign. Mm-hmm. Now, during the Italian campaign, he he went on a couple of vendors. Mm-hmm. There was a lot more access to liquor. Same thing in France. Mm-hmm. He would use alcohol to help him sleep. You know, but anyone, oh, you know, please, who, right? who knows a, a military veteran, right, mm-hmm. someone who's been in combat knows that, you know, it's, it's common to use alcohol to sure. numb the hypervigilance mm-hmm. and the high alertness and, and everything else. And so I think he's you know, used it um, in, in a way that probably wasn't healthy. Thank you. I, mean, um, I, I you know, because more you know about these guys, and your book is a home run, but the more you know about these guys, they're, they really are human beings. You know, for and, sure. And everything, you know, that all the glowing stuff you read about Ernie Pyle, and then he's dealing with stuff that 
everybody else is dealing with as well, or other people right. are as well. Um, when they get to London, Murrow is one of my idols. And um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And Murrow, without Murrow and Severide and you know those incredible men, Cronkite was part of it in the end. There were very few of those guys, and then here comes Ernest Hemingway and John Steinbeck, and people didn't know they were they were they were war correspondents. Yes, they were. They both did stints as correspondents. Um, they get a lot of flack for mm-hmm. their their stints um, because you know there's this perception, especially among the the really hard news guys, that you know these were celebrities that were coming in and trying to steal their mm. stories. You know, there a lot of people didn't like dealing with Hemingway. Oh no, um, lot, lots no. of correspondents didn't really care for John Steinbeck. No, but here's the thing: is everybody loved Ernie Pyle. Yes, <laughs> like oh. that was the that was the thing that really differentiated him. Who was the moment where he says, "I'm the real Ernie," and it was Heming- oh, Hemingway? So, yeah. <laughs> so right after Paris is liberated, there is this um, this hotel uh, called the Scribe in Paris that's right across from the opera. And this is where the Nazi propagandists had had their offices during the occupation. And so they, when they left Paris, the war correspondents came in and they took over. And Ernie wasn't there on the initial, uh, he, he wasn't at the hotel on the initial day of liberation. He arrived the day after. And he got a room across the street at a different hotel. And he comes to the Scribe, and this is like where all the correspondents mm-hmm. are, are having their cocktails. And, and really enjoying the liberation. And Ernie walks in and he finds a seat and pretty soon everybody's like gathered around him and they, they're trying to, you know, hear his stories and they're asking him questions. And you know, he was really famous at this point. And then walks in Ernest Hemingway. And I say he, uh, in the book, I say he walked in with the, he was strolling like a lonely warlord because that's really what he wanted. That's exactly great. Great, great description. (laughs) Um, and he walks up to the bar and nobody's paying any attention to him, which is, you know, against the rules. And so he slaps the top of the bar yeah. and the bartender looks at him and he, and he yells out, you know, I'll have a drink. And the bartender doesn't move quickly enough. And he roars, you know, I'm Ernest yes. Hemorrhoid, yes, yes. the rich man's Ernie Pyle. Yes. And and that was how Hemingway saw himself was like he was the sophisticated Ernie, you know Ernie, Ernie Pyle that yeah. the that the rich man wanted to read and Ernie wrote for the common people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was I as soon as I you know and the thing was that Ernie was so popular that all these correspondents that were there they all wrote about this mm-hmm. experience later on and so when I'm doing research for this book. It was so easy to find contemporary accounts of people interacting with him because mm-hmm. they wanted to record those memories. And plus, Hemingway is who he is. Plus, Hemingway is who Hemingway is. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm no fan. Well, but still, <laughs> I mean, it's like the stuff that that you know, like what you wrote about, and other people written about Ernest Hemingway. Obviously, a gifted writer. I mean, really a gifted yeah. writer. But there's a word <laughs> for people like yeah. that. And, yes. and but but in the meantime, there were these guys that you know, and I, you know, the, then when they create the new, you know radio news that becomes television news, most of those guys, if not all of them, had that experience, and certainly Severide oh, did, sure. Cronkite did, um, Andy Rooney, Murrow did, yeah, Andy Rooney did. What did that lead lead us to? 
Well, it's a good question because, you know, those guys were doing the kind of daily news stuff, right? Like they were, they were reporting from the front lines, but they were really reporting on kind of the big picture mm-hmm. and, and the, the, the headlines. And, you know, Ernie was doing the more kind of human interest mm-hmm. and the hometown soldier stories and a day in the life of kind of mm-hmm. stories. He was very much the columnist in, you know, and, and this was something you know, I don't think that everybody really understands the distinctions between a columnist and a reporter, yeah. right? A columnist is normally collecting information, putting together some kind of narrative and then producing that. Whereas a reporter is doing the who, what, where, when, why, mm-hmm. how story, right? So all these guys go through this crucible of World War II and then, like you said, they're they're on the other side, oh. the ones building the the radio and the mm-hmm. TV news, and and Cronkite becomes, you know, the mm-hmm. name in broadcast journalism. And in mm-hmm. fact, in one of the stories I wrote about Ernie, I had to call Ernie the Walter Cronkite of Ooh. World War Two. No, no, that's well right? said. To, yeah, you know, just to see, just to give people that sense of like, hey, everybody listen to this guy, mm-hmm. right? And Cronkite had that same effect on his viewers. Yes. Um, and and so, you know, I have to believe that there was something about that experience that made them. Yeah, I think so as well. People they became. Yeah. yeah and I, it's really that when it gets to when Cronkite, as they say, stood up and they were talking about Vietnam and mm-hmm. they had they had lost and Lyndon Johnson knew they had lost Frank Capra. Yeah. Frank Capra is all part of this, too, isn't he? Um, Frank Capra is there doing, he's like recording, um, documentary type mm-hmm. footage. Mm. And yeah, I, there's a really great documentary, um, and a really great book called, um, Five Came Back. Yep. I've read it. That talks, yeah. Yes. That talks about these directors that yeah. were, that enlisted or they, they, you know, offered up their talents as, um, and actually one of the, um, recordings is, a, is from the Battle of San Pietro. Mm-hmm which is a battle that Ernie wrote about and is a place that I visited. And so I used that footage, um, again, in, in helping me describe these scenes of what things were like at the time. Um, yeah, there's all these, wow. you know, incredible people. And then this project I'm working on now, I'm looking at um, novelists who wow. fought during World War II. So you have, you yeah. know, James Jones and Joseph Heller. Mailer. And and Mailer yeah. and... Right, all all the a similar sort of thing where they go through this experience and they come out and they have this desperate need yes. to communicate about it. I I I've got I knew and did interviews with uh, Leon Uris, Norman Mailer, oh, no kidding. Yeah, Norman Mailer, and Kurt Vonnegut. And, no kidding. Yeah, I really truly. Oh my did. gosh. Yeah, and um, wow, I'm, I'm okay, an old guy. I'm yeah. jealous. I'm yeah. very jealous. No, but <laughs> that's uh, incredible. Yeah, and Slaughterhouse Five was that was real. That was, you know, very, oh, yeah. that was real. And Mailer, I, uh, Mailer was in the Philippines and that fight for the Philippines. And, mm-hmm. and he, Leon Yoris was uh, that guy, you know, he, yes. and, and, well, and Mailer writes the first really you yes. know, big World War II novel, Naked and the Dead, Naked and the Dead. And yeah. then, you know, James Jones writes from here to return. Yes, he does. And, and then Heller comes out with Catch-22 in 61, yep. and Slaughterhouse Fire comes out in yep. 69. And, you know, and think about that. Like, one of the most definitive books of of that sort of World War II experience comes out, you know, 24 years later. 
So, you know, I think about that sometimes with like, you know, Vietnam literature, you know, the things they carried came out 20 years after. Well, what, you know, when are we going to get the 20 year after book? But but there were different wars. I mean, the the United States wins the Second World War. And and there were so many of these guys. And I really believe, you know, like like the Murrow's boys, you know, all those guys that worked for Murrow. And, yep. and they came and they built CBS. I mean, they really did. Absolutely. Yeah. And they were the, and, you know, they were the Jack Kennedy supporters because Jack was one of them. Oh, yeah. I've always yeah. believed that. I mean, I always believed that Jack was one of them. Um, and no, I'm just like, it's such powerful stuff and Mailer and Vonnegut. And they were angry. They were, in, in some ways, I thought they were, they were, Mailer was a, just an amazing guy to talk to. And oh, I bet. No, he, he was going to... He did a book called... Real quick story, and then I got a break. He did a book, and it was his last book, and it was entitled Harlot's Ghost, and it was about the CIA. Yeah. Yes. And I had read the Deer Park, Armies of the Night. You know, I, I was a real Mailer fan. And um, he was in town, and I bent over backwards to try and get him to come in the studio, and he did. And he had his whatever number wife that she was. She's real beautiful. <laughs> you know, she was like, really, mm-hmm. you know, uh, oh, she was, you know, like mailer, women with mailer. And um, so we, he ended up, he was going to do, I don't know, 20 minutes, whatever he was going to do. And then he realized I was, I read probably practically everything that he had written. And I was, a, I was a fan and he stayed and oh, wow. uh, he stayed in the studio, he stayed for two hours. And wow. at the end of the interview, and he gets up, and he heads for the door, and I'm like, and he turns back around. He said, "What did you think of the book?" <laughs> and and I said, "Little stupid fool," I said, "You have done much better." <laughs> true, true story. And he probably appreciates. He that. really he comes back over, shakes my hand, says, "Thank you." <laughs> and I mean, I, I'm in awe of Norman Mailer, but that that was, and yours was a totally different kind of a guy, and Vonnegut. Spent his whole time bitching about Geraldo Rivera, who had done his daughter wrong. But I mean, oh, jeez, oh, yeah, yeah, I wanted to talk about you know all those books, you know, Cat's Cradle and everything. Mm-hmm. He wanted to, mm-hmm. he wanted because uh, I'd I'd just worked with um, with with Cherry Rivers, as he would call himself sometimes. But Geraldo, because of the Ramsey case, and he said, "You work with that fill in the blank," and I said, "Oh, jeez, yeah." Wow. Let me let me put you on hold. We'll do a quick wrap up. Sure. We'll come back. Um, it's it's really well, and it's and so many of these people reappear. The Soldier's Truth uh, about the life and times of Ernie Pyle. Stay here. Seven ten K in U.S. We're going to have about two and a half, three minutes. Fifty three. The high today. Peter Boyle. Seven ten K in U.S. Denver's talk station. Kind of final couple of moments with with David in the book, The Soldier's Truth: The Life of Ernie Pyle. What's the lesson? What, what's the lesson of all of this? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. I think the the one that I took away from it um, was how important it is to keep these stories alive. Yes, um, and to to make sure. I mean, every day we lose World War II veterans, and pretty soon we won't have any left, yes. and we won't have these opportunities. I mean, the the uh, what I wouldn't give to be able to sit down with Ernie Pyle and, and talk to him about yeah. you know about his experiences or or you know to sit down with my grandfather and i can't do that um and so i think that's that's one of the the things i've i've heard 
most from readers too, where they reach out to me and they say, you know, Hey, at Christmas, I'm sitting down with my grandpa and we're going to, we're going to record him because we don't want to lose these stories. And if that's the takeaway people get from the book, I'll, I'll take that all day. And any, any of us, and there's plenty of us, but we're old men now too. We're raised by these uncles and, and uh, mm-hmm. relatives that had been through the experience. And, um, they and they they were the first guys to talk about Ernie Pyle when I'm a little kid, and I would sit and listen to them tell stories, and they're drinking and telling stories, and so I don't know, you know, the stuff that they would say, and uh, but they they all loved Ernie Pyle. Well, know. and one thing that I I found really um, interesting, I set up a Google alert for Ernie Pyle, and I you know anytime something got published, I would I would get an alert, and how often I got alerts that when I clicked on, they went to obituaries where someone in their obituary, it said that they had met Ernie Pyle or that yeah. Ernie Pyle had been with their unit and written they, about them. Yeah. Shit. Right. And like, it became a major plot point for people in their lives that they had known Ernie Pyle. And so I think, again, that just speaks to the impact he had. You take care of yourself. And if you're ever in town, the doors open and happy new year, David, congratulations. And- it's, a, it's a gift. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Be safe. Thanks, man. All right. uh, as we're going to come back with Steve Harms, talk about the Iron Claw, David Ellis, Cherry Creek. You've, I've seen David two times this week. If you need to take valuables to David, and again, this time of the year, you've got a fortune in cash. You've got to pay those holiday bills. Secure an appraisal from David for all the valuables you have tucked away in your home. And still true, let me assure you the reasons to see David, just in case you don't have a Rolex or a rare coin or rare coins or a silver tea set. See David for all your most meaningful gift-giving occasions. He's my friend. David Ellis Jewelers, the right items, the right time, the right place, special folks that mean the most to you. An antique watch, an emerald pennant, a gold necklace, a diamond ring. This trusted jeweler has been buying precious metals and antiques in Colorado for decades. Dazzling cases filled with hundreds of new and used pieces your loved ones will treasure. Visit David Ellis, see for yourself, the Black Awning on the corner of 3rd and Clayton and Cherry Creek. Six days a week, David's there, the Black Awning on the corner of 3rd and Clayton and Cherry Creek. David Ellis, jewelry.com, E-L-L-I-S, jewelry.com. You can talk to him at 303-322-8779, 303-322-8779. A film that's getting a lot of attention, The Iron Claw about the Von Erichs. And if you remember, Steve Harms was a... Uh, the sports talk host as well as did uh, hosted the sports on Channel 7, and he worked for Fritz, and he's got the story. 710 KNUS, hold on and stay right here. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.